You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. If you want to grab your Bible and join me in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verse 6. We are... Let me take a sip here. We are walking through the Beatitudes this summer. Um... Simple one-verse statements um, that hold incredible depth of um, the teaching of Christ, uh, the distinct difference um, that is Jesus. And we uh, noted that as we talk about the, the, um, the Beatitudes, as we call them, um, they seem to almost be kind of backwards in a way. They're, they're, uh, they, don't, they don't seem to make common sense in the way that we think of common sense, right? Um, we've, we've said that the, another way to translate the word blessed uh, is, to, well, you could also translate it as happy or one who ought to be congratulated. In other words, uh, when we say blessed in the Bible sense, it's saying something has happened to you that people should walk up to you and say, man, that is so great. That's so incredible. That's so wonderful. And that seems so strange when you have passages like, blessed are the poor. Good for you, right? Like it doesn't, that doesn't seem like that should make a whole lot of sense. Well, about 15 years ago, one of my seminary professors did some research to try to quantify a belief that he had um, uh, about some things that he had observed. And we all have that kind of information, right? There's things that we observe and we have an idea about what we think those things are. And we may not necessarily have, uh, you know, quantifiable data to be able to show that what I think is true, is that actually true or not? Um, But this is what he did. He began doing some financial research around uh, how much money is spent on one weekend of football in the United States. Uh, Friday night high school football games, Saturday college games, Sunday NFL games. One weekend. Uh, so every dollar that is spent because football happens, and I know I'm talking to a bunch of Texas folks, so this is a, this is a, we're, ta- we're treading on dangerous ground here. Uh, but every dollar that is spent because football happens, if it was possible to say, all right, everybody in the United States, the dollar that you would spend on this high school game, this college game, and this NFL game for one weekend, don't spend it. We're going to collect all of that into one location and put it on a very simple interest, um, uh, you know, savings account, if you will. Say, like, right now, I mean, I think back then it was like 2% interest and it's nothing now. But anyways, uh, and the idea that you put that all that money in there and it pays interest on it, how long would that money last paying for the amount of money that uh, organizations like the World Hunger Relief Fund say is necessary to pay for every meal necessary to feed every hungry person in the world by their category, how long would that last? And the data that he came up with was one weekend of high school, college, and NFL football would not run out feeding every hungry person in the world three meals a day for 10 years. 
That's crazy. Now, of course, every time I say this, people are like, well, okay, here's all the reasons why that couldn't happen. There's warlords and there's civil war. Yes, obviously, there are reasons why there are places that we physically can't get food to because the warlords steal it from the relief agencies before it can actually get to the places where it is needed. Um, so there's all kind of reasons for that. But the principle shows us a lack of understanding to understand the need versus the resources that are in existence around us, right? We think of world hunger and we think impossible. How could we do that? And my seminary professor said, well, you could simply do it for one weekend by missing one week or one weekend of football. Jesus talked about the nature of our passions in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. He said this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If you're hungry or thirsty, does anybody have to tell you to be hungry or thirsty? Does anybody ever have to remind you like, hey, Jim, you need to be hungry and thirsty, right? No, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. If you're hungry, you're just, you just are. If you're thirsty, you, you just are. Of course not. It's a natural part of living. It's the way that God wired us up. We've got some medical providers here uh, this morning. I'm pretty sure that they would say, if, if your body isn't hungry and isn't thirsty, something's broke and you probably need some medical care pretty quickly, right? That's a natural thing within our bodies. We don't have to make ourselves be hungry or make ourselves be thirsty. In fact, we have to do things the opposite direction. We have to do things like fast to try to even remind ourselves of what is actually, what does it mean to actually be hungry? Because probably for the most of us here, that's not a physical feeling that we've had in a quite a long time. Our hearts naturally hunger and thirst. They naturally hunger and thirst for meaning, for significance, for love, for entertainment, for safety. We hunger and thirst for friendship, power, and authority. And we never have to tell our hearts to to thirst for these things. We never have to tell our hearts to long for these things. We wake up in the morning and we just hunger and thirst for them in the same way that uh, most of us wake up in the morning and uh, if we're being honest, our first thought is not, God, thank you so much for this day. It's, did somebody push the button on the coffee pot, right? <laughs> if we're just honest. Because it's the nature of how our bodies work. So Jesus' charge in this for us to be happy, for us to be blessed, for us to be individuals that anybody walking up to us ought to be able to put their hand on your back, pat you on the shoulder and say, congratulations, because of what this is. His charge for us to be happy is not a call to do something that we can't naturally do on our own. It's really a challenge to change our appetite. A challenge to change our appetite. See, the big idea that Jesus has in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, is he gives this one little snippet, right? It's just, it's just a passing sentence. In the midst of all these other things, the big idea is this, that once our soul's appetite craves the things of God, rather than the imitations that this world offers, it's then and only then 
that we are actually truly satisfied. Let me read that again. Once our soul's appetite craves the things of God rather than the imitations that the world offers, it is then and only then that we actually can be truly satisfied. C.S. Lewis said about the human appetite that our appetite grows by indulgence. We begin to like something more, crave it more, want it more, the more that we indulge into it. It's the concept of binging when we talk about that in terms of today. Uh, it's probably the best way we can understand it. People binge watch TV shows. I think there's even a category on Netflix called binge-worthy sitcoms or something like that, right? People binge eat ice cream when they're very upset. They might go on a spending binge when pennies has a sale. It's one step leading to another in the long line of trying to be satisfied by that one thing. Of course, people also do things like binge drink, or we don't say binge smoke, but we would call it chain smoking, but it's the same idea, right? It is one step after the other chasing the satisfaction that we think this thing is going to do. But the reality is we can also binge things that have the appearance of goodness. We can binge Bible studies. We can binge mission trips or conferences. We can binge men's or women's fellowship. Good things, but trying to satisfy a misguided or misdirected appetite. You see, what's common amongst us as Christians is that what we actually hunger and thirst for is morality, not righteousness. What, when, when you get around a group of Christians, oftentimes we talk in terms of morality rather than righteousness. And you might uh, say, well, Chris, that seems like you're kind of just splitting hairs. Um, if you hang around me long enough, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about words because words have meaning. And I think it's one of the challenges that we're facing in our society today is that we use the same words, but we have different meanings for them, right? Like um, uh, the phrase, love is love, right? Now, every Christian ought to be able to say, yes, I absolutely agree with that statement, right? But what I mean by the definitions of that word is very different than what the world says about those things, right? Um, phrases like, Black Lives Matters. Every Christian ought to be able to raise their hand and say yes and amen, right? That's, that, should be, that should be a no-brainer. But we have a different definition for those words. And morality and righteousness have become one of those things that we as Christians have just kind of you know, put together as though they're the same thing. And righteousness is not the same as morality. Morality is defined as the principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. Morality itself is subject to human interpretation and opinion. Righteousness, on the other hand, is the distinction of good and bad as defined by God himself. It doesn't have anything to do with what society thinks or feels or believes. Righteousness is its, it's uh, defining point is the character nature of God himself. And if all of humanity decides 
these things that God has said are true aren't, and we believe this is what morality looks like, it does not change righteousness. And we live in a society in which uh, and uh, that we interpret morality based upon what we think is normal, what we think is right, and what we think is true. And that's just the way that society works. We think in terms of morality. So why is it that I make this big distinction between morality and righteousness? It kind of maybe seems like I'm splitting hairs at this point, but this is why. And I think it's important. Morality is an attainable human endeavor. Every human being can attain their culture's definition of morality. Righteousness, on the other hand, is not attainable by us. Morality is. Righteousness is not. Morality can be attained by religion, by education, by societal influence. Every culture uh, has standards by which they believe their people ought to operate on. And if you go from one society to another, those things maybe shift. This is why, you know, uh, maybe say in the U.S. versus in Europe, the drinking age is different, right? It's a society has made a judgment about the age in which an individual, what is a morally correct thing for that individual to do. And so we would say, you know, in our, in our culture, man, a 16-year-old drinking a beer, that's, a, that's just terrible. That's immoral. And then you go over to Europe and they're like, well, it's a big deal, Right? Because we as society have a morality kind of thing. We uh, shift around in that. And we can meet the standard of the morality of the society that we live in. But the Bible tells us that we cannot attain to the righteousness of God. When we are held up to His standard, when we're held up to His character, in other words, when we define our view of the world against what He has revealed Himself to be, all of a sudden we find out that we are less. We don't love the way that He does. We don't forgive the way that He does. We don't have justice the way that He does. We don't line up to who He is. Morality can be attained from religion, education, and social influence, but righteousness can only be attained through the gospel. Jesus is atoning for our rebellion against God by his death and resurrection. And yet, what we most often teach in Christian circles sounds more like this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for morality. For they shall then be righteous. I want you to think about that with me for a moment. What we most often hear taught in our Christian circles is really, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for morality, for they shall then be righteous. The idea that Christianity teaches that salvation comes through keeping some form of a moral code is incredibly prevalent in our world today. 
when you take a survey of American Christianity and kind of pool it in, regardless of uh, what denominational vein it comes from or whether it comes from a, a more traditional, um, you know, maybe Protestant or even Catholic or any of those things, if it has the fingerprint of Christianity upon it, if you take them and pool them together and say, what is the average of American Christianity? We oftentimes get in, you know, in tiffs about whether it's certain, you know, Certain group does things liturgically or more charismatically or more, you know, Bible teaching based or that's the distinctions that we make. But when you get under the current of that, um, there's a sociologist named Christian Smith who quantified and did research amongst all the groups. Uh, the app basically took a mean average of American Christianity and he described American Christianity uh, as uh, in this term of what he called moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism. And he said it was the worldview of the average American uh, religious individual. And it can be explained in five statements. The first statement was this. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That's the deism part. God created the world. He watches things, but he doesn't really do much in way of interfering with human affairs. There is a God. He's powerful, but he, he's not really concerned with who you sleep with or how you talk or what you do on a day-to-day -day business. He's just there. He made you and he's real, but he's not real concerned about your life. Except for the fact of statement two, that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most other world religions. That's the, when, when you talk to the mean average of American Christianity and they'll say, well, I mean, you know, Christianity is just kind of one general idea. And really the Muslims teach the same thing and the Jews teach the same, the Hindus teach the same thing. You know, it's all, we should just be good to each other, Right. That's the moralistic part of moral therapeutic deism. The goal of religion is to be a nice and moral person. That's what religion is really about. The third statement about moral, or, uh, uh, moral therapeutic deism is that the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Uh, the, the number one form of Christianity that we are exporting out of the United States into Africa, South America, even into China is what is known as the prosperity gospel. It is the idea that God wants you to have your best life now. Uh, and if bad things are happening to you, it's probably because you don't have enough faith and those kind of things. And we can point at that and go, man, that's just ridiculous, right? That's, I mean, that's so far off of what it is. But what about the fact that there's a growing, I mean, when I, when I say I'm so grateful for young missionaries moving into the field, I'm, I'm incredibly thankful for that because one thing that I heard in my generation and the generation under mine is that there's this pushback against their, from their parents and grandparents and saying, yeah, but if you go on the mission field, you'll never be able to retire well. I'll never be able to see my grandkids. You'll never be able to live down the road. You'll never, all of these things... And ultimately what they're saying is, I don't know that you'll really be happy. And I know that I won't be happy. That's the therapeutic part. That the most important thing in life is to be happy and well-balanced. That that's the ultimate goal. 
of our spirituality. The fourth statement is that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Now we see the deistic view of God combined with the therapeutic purpose. In other words, in this view, God really just wants you to be happy. God wants you to be true to yourself. God wants you to live your best life. Those kind of phrases that we hear that are tied to God, that's based in this ideology, in this worldview. And if we read the Beatitudes and we say, well, see, yeah, it says, God says, happy or blessed are the, wait, poor, those who mourn. That doesn't sound like the happiness that I think God should be having for me. And then here's the fifth part about this. And you probably will hear this echoed in a lot of Christian circles that you find yourself in. The fifth understanding of this worldview is that good people go to heaven when they die. Good people go to heaven when they die. Salvation is ultimately accomplished through morality. That's the definition. And dear friends, this is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the pseudo-spiritual, what I call coffee cup theology. Those just little, you know, God wants you to live your best life now kind of a, you know, snippet that we put on coffee cups, right? We don't put, take up your cross and die on a coffee cup. Nobody likes those. Nobody buys those, right? So this is the pseudo-spiritual coffee cup theology and spiritual self-help that gets shoved down our throats by those that are trying to sell a non-confrontational Christianity. But as D.L. Moody so aptly said, the gospel is offensive. Our job is to not be offensive on top of it. So let me be surgical with this as much as I can. Jesus doesn't want you to be moral any more than he wants you to be immoral. Because Jesus knows that your morality can't save you. The moral God-hater and the immoral God-hater are the same person. And that's ultimately what our sinful rebellion is. It's the act of, maybe never verbally, but the act of in reality, hating God. Looking at everything that God said was good and right and true and saying, forget that. I hate you. I've got a better way. I've got a better life. Being good doesn't qualify us for heaven. Jesus doesn't want you to stop swearing or lying or cheating or stealing as if by doing so or not doing these things, you will somehow attain the satisfaction that your heart longs for. What Jesus wants from you and for you is that you would cherish him above every treasure. That, you, that he would be your greatest joy. That he would be your only salvation. That in Christ alone, you would find your eternal hope. Because Christ's righteousness is unattainable by your or my actions. I can't do it. I can't match it. I can't earn it. And I certainly can't demand it. I can faithfully go to church, never get drunk, always have wholesome language, be a model of truthfulness, always be generous, never take advantage of people, 
and still be the polished metal on the outside of a casket. Or as Jesus aptly put it, uh, when he described the hypermoral, whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, full of death on the inside. If we pursue morality because we believe that the way in which we will, or that this is the way in which we will be satisfied in God, we will never be satisfied. Trying to do better. You see, we find our, if we're doing that, we're in the same boat as the heroin addict. We're just chasing a different drug. Jesus clues us into the source of our real and eternal satisfaction by telling us that when our appetite turns to His righteousness, not our own sense of moral goodness, but His righteousness, it's then that we are actually satisfied. Jesus says, blessed, happy, one who ought to be congratulated are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness which has only ever been exhibited for us in Jesus. And he says, For they shall, a perfect verb, it will happen. They shall be satisfied. The gospel of Jesus is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the righteousness of Christ can be applied to sinners like us to reconcile our God-hating hearts to our Heavenly Father. So when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we're not hungering and thirsting for good religious behavior. We're hungering and thirsting thirsting for the person of Jesus. And we're wanting nothing more to be, uh, than to be more and more and more like Him. It is our ultimate goal to be more and more faithful to Him, daily asking the Holy Spirit to make our hearts crave the things of Christ. To ask the Holy Spirit, look in me, search my heart, see if there's something that I'm holding onto that says, don't conform this to Jesus. God, I don't want you to mess with this because I really like this. And honestly, I think this is really good. And it turns out that that which we thought was good is actually an idol that we're bowing our heart to. Morality is a mirror by which we look upon ourselves and judge our goodness based upon the opinion, our opinion of the goodness of our neighbor. Am I moral? Well, compared to this guy, jeez, I'm a saint, right? Or her, man, look at, you know, you, you just don't know what she's about. And, you know, and, I look, and I judge my own life based upon that. Righteousness is Christ's reflection upon us. Both revealing our flaws, but covering them with His graciousness to where God only sees Jesus when He looks at us. The picture of the atoning work of Christ like the mercy seat of the Old Testament when the priest would go into that holy place and bring the sacrificed lamb and he would smear the blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant as God's holy presence looked down upon it and he would see the, the stone tablets, the law of God that we had broken and yet he no longer sees that. He sees the blood that is covering over that. That was all a picture to show us exactly what those who hunger and thirst for Christ's righteousness would be doing. It's us saying, cover me. 
God, see Jesus. Don't see me. Because I don't measure up. I'm not good enough. And at no point in time during in my Christian life do I ever get the place, get to the place where I no longer need the grace of Jesus. Here's a fun thought. In eternal life, we get to live forever, right? If there is such a thing as the measurement of time into eternity, a billion years from now, you will need the grace of Jesus no less than you need it right now. You will never outgrow your need for Jesus. And this is why he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because they will eternally, completely, it's finished, be satisfied. This is why Christ is truly the goal of the gospel and not the means by which we get some other goal. See, for a lot of people in Christian circles, Jesus is just a means to something else. Jesus is the means by which we get a happy life. Jesus is a means by which we uh, overcome our addiction. Jesus is a means by which we don't go to hell and some other thing. He's not the end goal. He's just the means to some other end goal. One brother in the faith said it this way. He said, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties that you ever saw, all the physical pleasures that you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ wasn't there? And I'm here to tell you that there are myriads of people that are sitting in churches today that classify themselves as Christians and say, yeah, I'd be fine with heaven like that. Because that's really what I want. Jesus is just the means by which I get that. That's what my heart longs for. Does your appetite hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Christ? If not, it's like trying to quench your thirst on a hot day by drinking a glass of lukewarm salt water. Or trying to quench the hunger pains of your stomach by filling it with sand. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not... This is how you do better. The gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus loved you in spite of the fact that you couldn't do better. And he substituted his life for yours, doing everything necessary to reconcile you to the Father. For those of us that have walked for, with Jesus for decades, may that never grow less sweet to us. I think for many of us, we, we walk a long time with Jesus and we forget the smell of hell. And it's why I love meeting people who came to faith later in life because, life because they still remember it. And they can speak that life back into us of going, don't you know how sweet Jesus is? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. Because only in His righteousness, by no act of myself, 
by no effort of my own will, by no level of me getting it, do I ever attain the satisfaction that I long for. It's only ever by His grace alone. This morning we're going to be reminded of that as we observe the Lord's Supper together. Jesus, when He gave us the command, the commission to observe the Lord's Supper, uh, He said, uh, as often as you eat of this, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. And we ask the question, why? Why is it that for the last 2,000 years, believers around the world have been breaking a piece of bread and taking of the fruit of the vine and drinking it and remembering the broken body and the poured out blood of Christ? Why? It's because we still need the grace of Jesus. We needed the grace of Jesus to become a Christian and we need the grace of Jesus to keep us in His saving grace. We never outgrow that need for it and it's a reminder that today, regardless of how moral you woke up today, you desperately need the broken body and shed blood of Jesus for you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.